Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The issue of what we're seeing, what we're encountering at the grocery store. And it's tough. The inflation rate has, uh, well, it just continues to rise. And as our friend Professor Sylvain Charlebois has told us, food inflation has outpaced general inflation for quite some time. It was 13 months. I'm not sure if that's still the case. Sylvain Charlebois, professor at Dalhousie University, the director of the Agri-Foods Analytics Laboratory. Sylvain, thank you very much uh, for starting this off. And if I can just start with this and get you to explain if this is correct, if I understand this, even when food inflation slows, it doesn't mean that food prices will begin to go down, only means they'll slow down as far as increasing costs are concerned. Is that correct? You are very good with your arithmetic, Roy. Congratulations. Quite sure I know what I said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there seems to be a lot of confusion uh, in terms of, of, of what inflation actually means, uh, what are what is going on with food prices. But generally speaking, you want food prices to rise over time. You want uh, uh, some in food inflation. The sweet spot is 1.5 to 2.5. But uh, obviously, we've been we've been way over that for quite some time, over a year now, well over a year. And, and that's why. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, the food inflation rate has exceeded the general inflation rate for over a year now. And that's why everyone is noticing higher prices. Uh, at the grocery store, wondering what is going on, where is this coming from? The reality, Roy, is that Canada has the third lowest food inflation rate uh, within the G7, and it's actually even lower than Denmark's or the Netherlands, and, and both countries are agri-food superpowers. So uh, in a grand scheme of things, Canada is not doing too badly, but the point I'm making is this is a global phenomenon. So to point fingers at one factor or one sector is uh, is a little short-sighted at this point. A little too easy to do that, and then as you say, short-sighted. Now, last weekend when we spoke, you gave us a hint that something was going to be coming our way, and then we found out that it was the Loblaws price freeze for no-name products. How's that gone over? So you remember, yeah. Oh, I remember. Uh, I couldn't tell you uh, when we spoke last weekend, but I knew it was coming, and uh, I just didn't know how people were going to react to the freeze. Uh, and uh, there, there's, uh, I think there's, uh, there, there was uh, some mixed reactions to Loblaws, and obviously there's there's some baggage. Uh, of course, people remember the bread price fixing scheme uh, a few years ago, and, and people are, are quite skeptical. We're actually, we've decided as a lab to survey Canadians on what they think about Loblaw's decision to freeze prices until January, and, and also we'll try to measure consumer trust towards grocers, processors, the entire food industry, and policy as well, food policy coming from our government. So uh, we'll probably have results in a couple of weeks. Uh, but Loblaw's campaign is, in my view, Noteworthy for two reasons. One, it includes 1,500 products, no-name products. That is the largest price freeze campaign I've seen around the world. I think the largest one was Carrefour's in France 
which include about 500 products. And the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that the campaign includes the highly lucrative holiday season. Uh, 20% of Loblaw's revenues are in December for the entire year. So that's something that we need to keep in mind here. So Loblaw's is, is really doing something quite unique and uh, is just trying to help Canadians to cope with inflation or provide some sort of immunity as you go through aisles at the grocery store. Yeah, when, when we talk about the the majors, the uh, the big corporations that are in the food business, now we're going to be speaking with the chairman of the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers a little later on this hour. What's it like for the independent grocers who, well, you know, they're standing basically on their own, or they have a they have a, a an association, but they have to battle the big guys on the yeah. big guys' terms almost. What's it like for them? My guess is that the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers uh, is not happy with Loblaw's decision because they just can't do what Loblaw has done. And uh, and so competitors of Loblaw's can't do I mean, Loblaw's is in a unique position. Uh, it has a lot of power and renegotiate with its contractual manufacturers to support its private labels, both No Name and President's Choice. It is the only company uh, which can do what it did last Monday. So as an independent grocer, I'd be concerned. But I, I think the, the most important point we need to make here, and this is one thing that I'm hoping Ottawa will look into, is how we've undermined independent grocers over the years by allowing three major transactions to occur in the last three years. And that would be Loblaws acquiring Provigo in 1998, Metro acquiring A&P in 2005, and Sobey's acquiring Safeway out west in 2013. All three transactions has, has led to the situation we're in right now, giving a lot of power to three companies. And that's why we're wondering uh, what's happening right now, and people are struggling to find choice and allow independent grocers to, to, to do very well. And right now, they're struggling. Yes. If A final question for you. As you look down the pages of the calendar, as far as we can, and I don't know if it's a, a projection or a or conjecture or a prediction, but if you look six months down the road, so ma'am, any idea of where we'll be as far as food prices are concerned in this country? Uh I hate to do this to you, Roy, once again, but I can't really tell you right now until December 20, December 7th when we actually release Canada's food price report. Uh, we're currently working on our forecast for 2023, so I'll be in a better position to tell you more uh, on December 7th. So I hate to to uh, to escape from from your very important question, but uh, right now I I honestly just don't know. I can't really tell you more than that. Giancarlo Tremarchi is the chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. He is also a grocery store owner, owns three stores in uh, the Ontario, in Southern Ontario, Vince's Markets. Giancarlo, thank you uh, very much for making time for us today. This is a topic that, an issue that is confronting each and every Canadian. If I can just ask you out of the gate this, how how noticeable is it when you see your customers in your stores that inflation is affecting them? Oh, it's very noticeable. Um, and, and oftentimes it's noticeable in the fact that we stop seeing them for a little while. 
um, because of the fact that independent grocers are often, it's often challenging for us to be able to do the deep discounting offers um, that those larger um, you know, players in the market can do. Uh, we just can't do it. We can't afford to do it. It's not something that we even have access to. Um, so one of the things that we start to notice is we stop seeing some of our regular customers um, or we start to notice the way that their shopping patterns start to change and they start to um, we, you know, purchase down in terms of quality um, or in terms of just um, you know, picking a choice when they're at a certain uh, part of the store. Okay. How much of a... A challenge is it? And we heard uh, Professor Charlebaugh talk about the three majors that really essentially uh, have the uh, well, a huge market share in this country. How much of a presence uh, challenge is it for independent grocers to have a presence, a real presence, in this marketplace? Uh, very challenging in this marketplace. I think um, when the pandemic hit, actually, at the beginning of it, uh, independent grocers served uh, their communities valiantly, I would say. And, uh, you know, we're often the difference in people being able to access food um, because oftentimes an independent grocer is located most of the time, you know, in a more rural area um, or even a suburban area where there's only one other store. Um, and so we often fill a market gap that the big chains, uh, it just it doesn't make sense for them to do so because they can't make enough money doing it there. So I think um, I think we play a very important role in how we serve communities. But when um, inflationary pressures and just the cost pressures that are associated in the supply chain for food have grown the way they have in two successive years, um, it becomes very, very challenging for us to differentiate and compete, um, particularly on staple items. Um, you know, we, I think independent grocers have always done a good job, and those who still remain today are still around because they've found a way to differentiate. And it's often on, you know, value and quality and service um, and, you know, differentiated uh, products that you can't get elsewhere. Um, but in an inflationary market like this, um, that's not what people are looking for. They're looking for um, the standard um, the standard uh, staples that they need to feed their family. And so that puts independence at a significant competitive differentiator, you know, significant, you know, competitive uh, challenge during uh, this time. Yeah. You mentioned the supply chain and what it's been like for you over the last two years and what it's like now. So could you just give us a perspective on that? And how does the yeah. supply chain, when it's coupled with the inflationary trend, how does that impact on how you eventually uh, price yeah. your, your goods? Yeah, so I, I, you know, it's a funny thing, you know, you know, listening to what's going on in the House of Commons with regards to the, you know, the pressure being put on um, the grocers for greedflation. Um, and actually, as an independent grocer, I'm sitting there going, that's not really actually, you know, as much as the independent, you know, the chains we think have taken advantage of their market position and unfairly created some market practices um, that, you know, they're able to really benefit from their scale more so, you know, than I think is probably fair. Um, on the flip side, you know, th what's happening right now, this is mostly a supply chain issue because the retailers, uh, you know, us included in the big guys, we're the last one in a long stream of, of costs. Um, we're ultimately the cost that we're adding or the, the markup that we add to our product um, generally, you know, is, is nominal. Um, and that's shown in the way that our industry operates with our margins and our gross margins. Um, so really what we have is a supply chain issue that has been not just happening over the past two years, but I would say over the past two decades. And, and if I can elaborate a little bit more on that, the consolidation and, you know, by consolidation, it's really what we're talking about is the mergers of, you know, good quality companies across the country. You know, that mergers and those consolidation has happened both on the supplier side as well as the retailer side. But on the supplier side, when that happens, Independents often lose one more company that used to like to do business with us. 
Because when they consolidate into these massive companies, these multinational, international companies that, you know, are the staple goods that people expect to buy at their grocery store, regardless of if it's an independent or if it's a chain, um, when those companies get large, they don't want to do business with the small guys anymore because it's more expensive to do business with the small guys. Mm. So, you know, there's so much challenges in us getting good pricing on the goods that customers come to expect at the grocery store. And that actually is creates wedges in how an independent can become, you know, uh, really, you know, competitive um, again uh, in, a, in a down market when inflation is so, is so high. And, you know, again, when we have a shorter path to purchase as independents, we are way more competitive. So when we only are like one step away from the product or two steps away from the product, we, we can do really well. Um, but when we become further away from that, source product, our costs go up and we just can't compete anymore. And so I would, I would say that there's probably more of a need to look at the consolidation on the supply chain side and really the, the, the practices of our industry um, that need attention more so than the fact that the grocers are profiting um, uh, during this time. Well, they always profit and you go back and look at their financials and they're really not that different than what they were two years okay. ago. You know, for a percentage standpoint. So we have the supply chain issue. We have everything you just explained to us, and I understand, and it, it gives me a clearer picture of what the independent grocers are facing. I was at the gas station uh, the other day, and I was filling up my car, and it was a it was a buck eighty eight or a buck ninety or whatever it was for uh, for fuel. I just closed my eyes and pump. Um, but then I saw the diesel price, and the, and the diesel was two forty three point nine. And I knew we were going to have this conversation, and I thought, so I don't know if the majors are able to deflect this kind of cost more easily than the independent grocers, but when you have that kind of a, a, a diesel price reality, and now we're expecting to see gasoline and diesel go up again, that must impact you as well. This has, Is that just one of those unpredictable factors you, you just have to live with and cope with as it arrives? Uh, yes, I, I don't think we can get away from it. Obviously, um, you know we've got our our own logistical you know costs that are local to Ontario. Um, for a lot of our food, if it's domestically produced food, then you know that that rising those rising commodities like like oil, they do have a pretty profound impact on the cost of goods. Um, what we had what happened last year with really those supply disruptions and the cost of long freight track transport that really drove food costs because now we're talking about container costs. And, you know, trucking costs that almost went up, you know, some cases they, they doubled, if not even came close to almost three times as much as their traditional costs. And those will always funnel down. And you got to think about negotiating power. And, you know, if a, if a supplier comes to us and say, you know, all of these things have led gas being one of them to rise the cost of this box of cereal, um, the small independent grocer or the smaller chains they really have no power to deflect those cost increases where the larger players, they can fight and, you know, rightfully so and try and continue to push down. Um, and so there's a real disproportionate, you know, level of, you know, playing field where, um, you know, preferential pricing, you know, volume based pricing, um, moving product becomes so expensive that if you buy much more of it, you know, you get a much better price. And that's just the reality of the industry. And so independents have to find ways to be very, very creative and if you're trying to compete, I'm going to say, you know, if, if an independent in this country is trying to compete on selling, you know, the basic staple products at the lowest price in the market, they're not going to be around for very much longer if they're even still around um, because yeah. it'll just, the market doesn't allow for that. 
We're talking about food. We're talking about food inflation. We're talking about the cost of food. We're talking to the to the grocers. We just spoke with the chairman of the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers, Giancarlo Tremarchi. Professor Sylvain Charlebois was with us. We took your calls. And joining us now is the leader of the New Democrats federally, Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh's had a lot to say about the majors in the food industry and the profits they make. Mr. Singh, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. So uh, explain to us, please, what your concern is in, in as brief a period of time as you can with the profits that the majors are making. And I'll alert you to the fact that Mr. Uh, Tremarki told us he feels what's happening as far as profits are concerned, largely dependent on the supply chain. What do you say? Well, we have a couple of things that we're looking at. First of all, when you heard Canadians saying that they're struggling to buy food, in a country as rich as ours, it shouldn't be the case that people are working full-time jobs or having a hard time buying groceries. But that's the reality. So we started looking at what was going on. We saw inflation on the rise, the cost of everything going up, but particularly food. And while everything else saw a minor reduction, food continued to rise. And we also noted a couple of other things. We saw that the major CEO corporate grocery stores were receiving big profits and their CEOs were getting big bonuses. Workers weren't getting paid more. Producers weren't getting paid more. And in all of that, we started thinking about 2018. Not too long ago, in our country, the large corporate grocery stores and the big bread producers were found to have colluded to increase the price of bread, to fix the price of bread. And it took years to uncover, and it was finally found that that was going on. Given all of that, and more and more economists pointing to corporate greed as a driver in inflation, as a clear indicator that the costs uh, of, of things have gone up, but the prices have gone up far higher than the cost, and that many corporations are using the cover of inflation to make record profits. All of that led us to say, we need to do something about it. We forced all the other parties who had no courage to call out this greedflation. We forced the other parties to agree with our plan, which was to tackle uh, the food prices rising by a food inquiry, a food price inquiry, so we can get to the bottom of what's going on. Is it price fixing? Is it exploitation? What is it? A plan, a strategy to reduce the price of food. So what would you like to see done, Mr. Singh? What would you like to see done? What needs to be done? Do you want to see the the grocers, the, the, we're talking about the majors now. Do you want to see them required to explain their pricing and, uh, and, and reduce pricing as government may decide, depending on the situation? Ultimately, our goal is to make sure food is affordable. That's our goal. And what yeah. we've called for as a concrete step is an inquiry into food prices. Now, the outcome of that inquiry will determine the next decision. So if the outcome is that there's price fixing, then we want to use the Competition Bureau and the tools that we have to tackle the monopolies to make sure prices are fair. If it turns out there's exploitation, then there's a different approach we can take. We can look at profiteering and the windfall tax as a strategy to deal with that. So there's many things that we can do. The inquiry into the food prices will set the course of action, which will be the most appropriate response so that people can have food that's affordable. Do you have any concern that government getting involved in free enterprise in a situation like this? And I understand and I agree with you. The food prices are central to the well-being of Canadians. We had a caller who was telling us that he's actually skipped meals because he can't afford what the, the food is costing him. But do you have concerns that if government gets too deeply involved with free enterprise that you affect investment in the country, you'll infect investment by these, these, these companies, these corporations who do actually employ millions of people across the country, not just the food industry, but I'm speaking more generically now. Do you have concerns about government overreach? Well, 
Well, I think we've made it very clear as a society, we believe government's role is to protect consumers. That's why we have consumer protection laws. That's why we have anti-competition or we have competition bureau, because we know unfettered, the free market will just consolidate more and more power into fewer and fewer hands, will result in monopolies. And monopolies are bad for competition, bad for consumers, bad for people, and frankly, bad for business. If one company controls all the power, you won't have innovation, you won't have competition, you won't have more people and more entrance into the market. So there's a reason why we decided as a society that we know that unfettered power will be abused. It will be used to exploit people. And as a society, we've already done this in the past. After the world wars, when companies were profiteering off the war, we said that was wrong. And we you're were right. Saying, you're not saying, though, employer bad. We're saying that exploitation of people is wrong. And without government coming in to protect consumers, so, that's what we would see. So we I understand you correctly. Are you saying exploitation is taking place now as far as the food industry is concerned? I'm saying we need to get to the bottom of it. And that's why we've called for uh, an inquiry into fight and food price. Into but if, the if you called for price. an inquiry, that's, that leads me to believe that you believe that exploitation is, in fact, taking place. I'm not, I just want to get to the bottom of how you feel about this. Yeah, yeah I believe absolutely something something's going on that's wrong. There, there's something clearly going on that's wrong when the prices are so high, wages haven't gone up for the workers in those in those factories, in those food producing uh, facilities, the workers in the grocery stores, their wages haven't gone up, producers aren't receiving more money, and we see big profits for the corporate grocery sector, and we see CEOs getting big bonuses. I absolutely think there's something wrong. What that is, we're going to find out. It could be exploitation, it could be price fixing, but yeah, at the end of the day, I think that people are being mistreated here, and I want to protect Where- people. Where, where does inflation fit into this particular scenario? Because we know that even if inflation, food inflation now, if it slows, it doesn't mean that food prices will begin to be lower. It only means they'll slow down as far as increasing costs are concerned. So where does inflation fit into this whole picture? Well, it's a really important discussion. What we've looked at and what we've seen in terms of the evidence, there are some uh, real factors around inflation. There are, there's a war in Ukraine, which has absolutely obviously had an impact. There's the impact on the oil uh, and gas sector because of the Ukraine, which has increased prices for oil and gas. Uh, and we know that there are supply chain issues that are residual from the, from the pandemic. Those are all real. But when we look at what's going on and we look at those increased costs, and then we compare it to the profits, if the increased costs were solely the drivers of the increased prices, then we wouldn't see increased profits. We would just see the same profits. But we're seeing record profits. We're seeing 30-year high record profits from the oil and gas sector. And we're seeing massive record profits when it comes to the corporate grocery sector. The fact that they're making record profits leads evidence, gives us evidence, that the prices are being set beyond the increased cost. So inflation is certainly being caused by some uncontrollable factors. But we also know that corporate greed is contributing to inflation, and that to me is a problem. Corporate greed should not be driving up the cost of things, and so that's where we saying, need to step in. Yeah, you're saying exploitation is taking yeah. place. Mr. Singh, let me ask you one other question. It's not related to this, but it's huge, and it's on the minds of all Canadians. We have the, uh, the uh, Public Order Emergencies Commission hearings taking place in Ottawa. What's your sense about the uh, invoking of the Emergencies Act? Well, from the beginning, we, we knew what was going on was wrong. It was clear that uh, the shutting down of borders, uh, the loss of revenue to our country, factories were shut down, workers were losing hours of work, were losing their, their ability to go to work. And we saw what was happening in Ottawa, targeting citizens, families, businesses. Families and businesses were going through the worst lockdown 
of the entire pandemic caused by the convoy, which was targeting people, not the government. They weren't targeting politicians. They weren't targeting elected officials. They were targeting residents by blocking the streets of community members. And so that needed to end. And so I'm very confident in doing what was needed to make that end. But now uh, I also want to make sure that there's full transparency. Why didn't the police respond? Why did it get to that point? Uh, why was no other actions taken previously? And we're seeing more and more evidence that the police were in disarray. The Ottawa police were attacking each other. The OPP did not respond. Even the premier was missing in action. And it's come out that he ran for cover rather than taking a stand. So there's right. clear failure. I, 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 have to, I don't want to, but I have to interrupt you because we're out of time. What my guest has to say about what she just heard, Mr. Singh say. So we're at uh, the invoking of the Emergencies Act. And as you know, the Public Order Emergencies Commission hearings are taking place. And the Canadian Civil Liberties Association has not heard enough to justify the invoking of the EA. Kara Zweibel is the director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And she joins us. Ms. Weibel, thank you very much for taking the time. You just heard Mr. Singh and what he had to say. How do you react to that? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm surprised, I guess, to hear that. I think that, um, I mean, certainly there were, you know, we've been hearing this, and I don't think it's a surprise to anyone who was paying attention in February that um, residents and businesses in Ottawa were, in Ottawa in particular, were very seriously impacted by the uh you know, by by the protests and the you know occupation that was happening uh, in Ottawa, but um, but, but I you know I, I think it was it was pretty clear, and I mean I think we'll hear more about this as the commission goes on because uh, in in a few weeks I think we will start hearing from some of the protesters and the convoy organizers, um, but I think they very much were trying to communicate something to the federal government. Um, you know, certainly there was people there with lots of different agendas and lots of different issues, um, but a large number of people were, were you know, protesting um, vaccination mandates um, and, you know, in general, sort of some of the public health restrictions that we had been living under for, for an extended period of time. Uh, would you assess for us then overall what you heard this past week at the Public Order Emergencies Commission hearings and what what caught your attention most? Um, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things going on at the commission. I think that, um, you know, first of all, we're hearing about the, the level of uh, chaos, really, that, um, you know, was, was going on within the Ottawa Police Service, within the city of Ottawa. Um, uh, you know, about attempts to get provincial engagement in Ontario, which seem, would seem to not really happen, at least not until, um, you know, uh, the Ambassador Bridge became blockaded. Um, I, I think the one of the most interesting and significant things, I guess, from my perspective as someone who's interested in, you know, the, the right to protest and how we think about the right to protest in, in a democracy um, is is actually how many of the police witnesses that have testified have talked about um, the importance of really facilitating protest. I mean, they they obviously, you know, realized at some point that the, the way in which the protesters were choosing to protest was disruptive and harmful and, and uh, in some cases, you know, harassing residents and assaulting residents, and that was not acceptable. But um, they started off with a mindset very much around, you know, 
individuals in Canada have the right to protest. We need to facilitate their right to do so in a way that's safe and, and that balances, you know, public safety and public order more generally. And over and over again, we've heard witnesses from uh, the police talk about the importance of these public liaison teams, which are police officers that are really there to sort of engage directly with protest organizers and try to negotiate and work with them and and really ideally facilitate the right to protest. You know, you know, I'd be very curious to talk to protesters, particularly protesters um, who are not the ones that were in Ottawa, but protesters like Indigenous protesters and land protectors, um, you know, uh, the, the, some of the, the racialized communities that have come out and protested and, and see if they've also had this kind of very positive attempts to engage by police. But, uh, you know, a lot of the police and witnesses have talked about sort of trying to allow people to protest in a way that is... Yeah, well, we didn't hear from the Ontario Provincial Police. We didn't hear that they said, they didn't certainly feel, or their intelligence unit, representative of their intelligence unit, didn't see uh, the reason for the invoking of the Emergencies Act. It, to them, it wasn't a, a national emergency at that particular, an insurrection at that scale, at that level. As you said, there's we're going yeah. to be hearing from other people, but so far... You know, the the EA um, representing, or at least succeeding, the War Measures Act, that's the nuclear option for Parliament. And as we understand it, the nation is has to be under very direct threat in order for this Emergencies Act to be invoked. And we're not hearing that. No, no, we're not. We're not hearing uh, sort of about, you know, threats to national security. Uh, we're not really hearing about, um, you know, this, this sort of... Uh, the, the OP, one of the OPP witnesses in particular talked about sort of the narrative around, you know, extremists, that this was a, a, a protest largely driven by extremists and um, it, the intelligence that the OPP had. So that, that, that was not supported by their intelligence. So what we're seeing is what we're hearing is the Ontario, uh, the Ottawa Police Service was the one that seemed to be um, you know, out of step with itself. And, uh, and, and so the policing of this situation, laws, the policing laws, policing legislation would have, or regulations would have allowed them to take care of the situation. And we also don't see, we didn't see, you tell me if I'm correct about this, but I don't think we saw the kind of interforce cooperation, which might have made the situation far more doable as far as policing is concerned. We're talking RCMP, OPP, and OPS. Yeah, I think what we're seeing is that it's, I think eventually that did happen, but it took much too long. Well, yeah, that's I think. The word is eventually, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that, um, and and it's hard to know. Also, you know, there's um, there's things going on at the policing level. There's things going on at the political levels, and it's hard to know how those things are interfacing. So I think it'll be interesting to hear more about that from from witnesses that are to come. Um, mm. We we this week, along with some other groups that are participating in the uh, commission. Uh, you know, raised with the commission the need to probably hear from uh, Premier Ford. and so Well, that's what you want, right? I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is yeah. something that you want, and I saw your news release, mm -hmm. uh, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association news release from October 20th. Premier Ford must testify, and so must the Solicitor, Solicitor General. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, the evidence that we've been hearing is really that they were uh, not interested in talking about how the, the province might be able to assist Ottawa, that Ottawa was, you know, looking for assistance, was trying to get information from the province. Is there something you can do about, you know, these are commercial 
vehicles, that some of which, many of which are registered in Ontario. Can you take some action with the commercial vehicle registration? Is there anything insurance-wise you can help us with to try and, you know, convey to, to some of these people that they need to leave? Um, and at least so far, mostly what we've heard is that the provincial, at the political level, they were not interested in engaging. They said this is a police matter and, you know, the, the police yeah. need to work it out. I have one, one more question for you. Is there any way, this may not be a fair question, just tell me so if, if you don't think it is. Is there any way that you can imagine yet to be heard testimony, perhaps by the prime minister, will convince the CCLA, your organization, that invoking the Emergencies Act was necessary and that Canada's governance was in absolute peril? Based on what you've heard so far, can you see a persuasive argument? Um. It's hard. Uh, I guess it's hard to imagine. I mean, one of the things I think that, you know, obviously there's in, going to be intelligence and um, potentially national security information that we will probably not get access to. Um, there's certainly, you know, documents that that are um, are going to be before the commission that will be redacted, have been redacted by government for various reasons. Um, but really, I mean, one of the most significant things about this this whole thing is that under the Emergencies Act, the federal government, when they declare an emergency, they have to lay out their reasons for doing so and, and put that before Parliament so that Parliament can vote on it. And we have those reasons. We have a, a document where they lay it out. And, you know, in my view, there's nothing in that document that really says that, that the threshold that the Emergencies Act sets was was met. There were certainly serious economic consequences. There were concerns about, yeah. you know, more more protests to come and more potential blockade. Yeah, but, but given what we faced and given the reality, there, there was no reason, and I'm speaking for myself now as a Canadian citizen watching what's going on, mm-hmm. for the invoking of the Emergencies Act. I also have another point that I want to just raise with you in passing, and I tweeted about this. I actually didn't tell what I, but the point was. But I, I if you have an insurrection and the insurrection is threatening the survival of government and the survival of, of, of public order and governance in a country, that insurrection isn't going to disappear in a couple of days because you invoke the Emergencies Act. If it were that severe, I would have expected the situation to just become worse, regardless of what the government did, but it, it filtered out, it yeah. went away. Yeah, no, I, I think that it, um, you know, I don't think there's any good uh, intelligence that suggests that, that this was a, an attempt to violently overthrow the government. Um, there, there were certainly people who wanted, you know, a change in government. Uh, they wanted I'm speaking to generically, to though, if you're, going to, yeah. if you're going to invoke the Emergencies Act, the, the country has to be in peril. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, the, and the imperilers, if there is such a word, are not going to fade away in a couple of days just because the government invokes uh, even an emergencies act. If they are that determined to overthrow or, 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 or you know, take down a government, it's not going to go away in a couple of days. Yeah. This is, this is, I think this is core and fundamental to the question. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it'll be really interesting to hear... Um, you know, to hear from some of the people involved in the convoy, yes. some of the people that were, were yes. organizing to hear what they have to say, because I think, you know, we got a, um, depending on the type of media that you consume, you may have had a particular idea about, um, you know, about who the protesters were. And I think there's probably a lot more variation than we, than we realize. David Eby, 
is now the leader of the British Columbia NDP and uh, promises that when he's sworn in within the first 100 days as premier to take action on oil and gas infrastructure developments in the province. And what is that going to mean to British Columbians and to the rest of us in this country? Rob Shaw is political correspondent at Czech News in Victoria, British Columbia. He's the co-author of A Matter of Confidence. Rob, thanks very much for making time. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm great. Thank you. Uh, so, David Eby, uh, the only approved NDP candidate to succeed uh, John Horgan as leader and then premier. Can, can you just give us the, the background on that and what the fallout is? Yeah, he was endorsed by all of the, pretty much all of the caucus and cabinet of the NDP government here. And he was going to be coronated as the next premier. But at the last minute, an environmental activist, uh, sort of from outside the party, uh, named Angelia Paterai showed up to challenge him, and she used the environmental movement in BC to sign off a ton of members, had him on the ropes, it looked like. She may have out-organized him, and the party intervened and started putting its thumb on the scale and disqualified her uh, just this week. So EB is now the premier-designate. Uh, he was saved by the party, and he'll be sworn in as premier in the next uh, couple of weeks, replacing John Horgan, who's retiring uh, due to health reasons. Yeah. Is there, is there fallout within the NDP over the decision to disqualify the other candidate? Well, for sure. I think there's a lot of new Democrats who don't like the idea of, um, you know, a middle-aged white guy passing off power to another middle-aged white guy without any sort of party vote. And there's a movement in the party. You remember, our new Democrats in B.C. are a kind of a coalition, an alignment of the environmental wing, traditionally, and the kind of union labor uh, we call them the brown and green sides, the brown, dirt, hard hat wearing union, natural resource, job, construction, New Democrats, and then the green, urban, environmental, eco-conscious New Democrats. And Horgan was on the brown side. Uh, EB's a bit on the green side. Um, and the, the blowback is coming from the green side and the sort of environmental folks who are behind a Paterai who don't think this government's done a good enough job on climate change and, and some of the decisions it's made in the resource sector. So that's, that's where the, the split is, how it affects the party in the future. We're two years from a provincial election. Nobody's, nobody's entirely clear, but it's very messy internally. Yeah, for sure. And Andrew Weaver, the former leader of the Green Party, su- supported uh, David Eby to be leader of the NDP. So it, it really, well, for the rest of us, it gives us a headache. Well, politics makes for strange bedfellows. (laughs) Sure does. Yeah, for sure. Hey, uh, Rob, uh, what should uh, we know across Canada about David Eby? What do people outside of British Columbia need to know? Well, he is an urban activist. So he used to, uh, he's a lawyer and he used to work for Pivot Legal, which is kind of a downtown east side advocacy group in our uh, Civil Liberties Association. He wrote a manual at one point on how to sue the police. So his enemies, and you'll hear a lot of this in the months ahead, they say he's a wild radical who is going to kind of veer the party to that woke leftist culture. He's actually more moderate than that, but he is definitely what we would call a lone wolf. So where Horgan was a pleaser and a conciliator and someone who got along with a lot of different people, E.B. has got that sharp, lawyerly, lone wolf instinct where he just kind of analyzes and, and goes. He's not a traditional New Democrat. He doesn't care who won the 1967 leadership race between Thomas Berger and Dave Barrett. Uh, like he doesn't, he doesn't bring baggage to the table that way. Uh, and in some ways, he's he's probably going to tilt the party more to the urban green side. So you're going to see this government do 
less of its resource projects, less of what it's got into trouble with in its environmental wing. It's approving the LNG construction in BC. It went forward with our controversial Site C dam. It's supporting a natural gas pipeline. Those are things EB may not be so keen to follow through on. Uh, and I think he's going to change the tone of the government to a more urban environmental uh, kind of eco-conscious uh, government for sure. Yeah, and he said, has he not, that in the first 100 days as premier, he's going to take those actions as far as the oil and gas in- industry infrastructure growth is concerned. How's that going over generally in British Columbia? Well, I think there's a little bit of concern. Uh, New Democrats have tiptoed around that issue. We don't have a lot of oil development in B.C. We get it through a pipeline. We have a lot of natural gas development. And this government right now under John Horgan has encouraged that industry to grow. It is pro-LNG. We have a gigantic export terminal being built in Kitimat. Uh, EB is not quite as supportive on that. He, he wants. He said he's going to move to eliminate oil and gas subsidies, which in our province really means the subsidies for companies to drill um, you know, uh, natural gas wells and frack them to find more gas, which um, is controversial. And um, the subsidies in BC don't really work that well. There was a report recently on it. So I think he's going to take a big stab at taking money away from the industry, putting it into climate change uh, prevention. And I mean, that affects the rest of the country a, a bit, but um, we, we don't, we're not an oil power player. We're, we're more of a natural gas kind of player. And, uh, and that future of that industry, I think, is, uh, is going to change in B.C. Now, we're going to be speaking with uh, Professor Bro in Paris. He was formerly responsible for energy security for France in just a few minutes. He spent a lot of time on the air with us over the last numbers of months talking about the energy crisis that's building in Europe. I'm just curious how he's going to feel about what's happening or may happen or will happen in British Columbia. But here's another question I have for you. We spent uh, some time with uh, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith on this program twice recently, just before she was uh, elected the leader and then just before she was sworn in. As premier, now there has been some friction and some fractious relationship between BC and Alberta in the past. Do you see what kind of relationship do you see between David Eby and uh, Daniel Smith? Now, Mr. Eby has two years on his side. Uh, premier Smith is going to be facing an election in in May of next year. What do you think? Well, the it's, it's a fascinating dynamic, BC and Alberta's relationship. The worst relationship that the Horton government had was the NDP Alberta government under Rachel Notley. They just did not get along at all. They were on opposite sides of environmental issues. And in fact, Notley used to work as a staffer with Horgan. There's a great, fantastic quote put out by her press secretary at one point when Horgan was talking about how he was friends with Rachel Notley and the press secretary had to issue a statement saying they were never friends. They were work colleagues. <laughs> that was a bad relationship. But Horgan and, and, and Jason Kenney, they got along really well. They actually, uh, Horgan joked last week, he thought about opening up a consulting firm with Jason Kenney now that they're both on their way out. Uh, Horgan was a pleaser. He found a way to chair the Council of the Federation and work with other premiers across party lines. EB is not. And I don't think we're going to have great relationships with uh, him, his government and the Smith government. I don't think they share a lot in common. And I don't know how EB is going to build those bridges nationally. Um, this government right now that he's taking over feels burned by the Trudeau government nationally on some things. And so they're going to have to work on that relationship. Uh, Horgan's pretty ticked off that we didn't get the health care funding for provinces that he spent his remaining political capital as chair of the Council of Federation fighting for. And he's kind of ticked off at Trudeau. So 
not great interprovincial federal relations for BC, and uh, we're all watching to see how EB fixes that, if he even cares about fixing that. There have been health developments for Jess LaRochelle, the heroic Canadian soldier who single-handedly fought off the Taliban and protected his platoon while he was very seriously wounded in 2006. Now, Canada's military and government bureaucracy have refused to award Jess LaRochelle the Canadian Victoria Cross, even though we had two generals on this program, General Rick Hillier, the former head of defense staff, and Omer Lavoie, a general on site during the battle, and saw Jess LaRochelle's actions. They were both on this program, arguing for the Victoria Cross for Jess LaRochelle. Last month, he had another serious surgery. And they were related. The surgeries have all been related to the wounds he suffered in that battle in 2006. Bruce Moncour is back with us. Jess LaRochelle's former platoon mate, who himself had part of his brain blown away by a U.S. jet fighter. The pilot mistook the Canadian soldiers for Taliban. Bruce, thank you for coming back on the program. I know you're working so hard for Jess. And just before we talk about Jess, your thoughts, because it's eight years to the day, since the, the murder of uh, Corporal Nathan Cirillo from the Argyle and Sullivan Highlanders of Canada at the National War Memorial in Ottawa. Your thoughts, please. I've, I've, I've served with the Argyles all my career, and because uh, I was uh, a reservist out of Windsor, so we were obviously our proximity, and they were a great, uh, a, they're an amazing uh, regiment with a steep history in, uh, in fighting for this country. And I, although I never got to meet uh, Nathan Cirillo, um, I, I definitely was affected by the fact that I had so many friends do uh, uh, that that job as a sentry of the, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And I've walked by that site countless times and i i always think about uh that day and you know how scary it must have been and just you know to uh see have seen that uh you know the last moments of your life you know being with such confusion um and you know there's there's a young you know young child without uh you know the father there and is growing up without a father and i just yeah, it's it's you know it, it doesn't even see, seem like it's been eight years, but still so sad. <clears throat> it is very sad, and you're right. It doesn't seem like eight years. 2014, October 22. Uh, remind us, please, um, what Jess LaRochelle did in 2006, and tell us about the surgeries that he's undergone. I understand that there is some good news about the surgical outcome, even though Jess continues to struggle from those wounds from 2006. So Jess um, was uh, volunteered to man an observation post on August or October 14th, uh, 2006, and um, minutes before an attack happened, and his position was hit by a, a rocket-propelled grenade, which knocked him unconscious and broke some vertebrae in his neck and his back, detached a retina, and blew out one of his eardrums. And when he came to, two of his uh, section were killed, four injured, and they risked... It was a very... Uh, high probability that the, their position was going to be overrun. And rather than, um, you know, you know, lay there wounded with such severe wounds, he manned a machine gun and, uh, and fought off 40 uh, upwards of 40 Taliban, um, at one point taking single shot rockets and firing them, uh, you know, exposing himself to the, to the, to the enemy and firing these rockets. 
and ultimately uh, turned the tide of the battle and repelled these Taliban fighters and saved uh, you know countless lives and, and held the position and prevented the Canadian position or uh, that one flank from being uh, divided in half. So it's uh, it, you know his actions and the actions of others that day kind of saved uh, that, that that very precarious position. And um, yeah, he was decorated with the second highest medal, the Star of Military Valor. But we've uncovered new evidence that we feel could warrant a review for him and possibly upgrade him to the Victoria Cross. And you certainly have a lot of support. You had the electronic petition go to Parliament, and uh, so many thousands of people across this country signed it in favor of the Canadian Victoria Cross for Jess LaRochelle. General Omer Lavoie, who was there, uh, saw the battle, was on the program thanks to you, and uh, General Rickelier also supporting the Canadian um, Victoria Cross for Jess LaRochelle. What is your sense about the the odds the likelihood that the military bureaucracy and the government bureaucracy can be persuaded to revisit the request because they've said publicly, nothing's going to change our minds. So under this government, we still are holding out hope that, that the government will at least let us, I guess, give them a briefing about all we've uncovered to at least listen to us. Um, a big win for us would be if, uh, the government would actually say Jess Lorishell's name publicly. They have yet to do so in, in the two years that we've been uh, uh, advocating for Jess. Um, we've, that, that petition that you mentioned, we had in four months, we had 14,000 signatures. And the, response, the government response they gave in, on the 17th of July uh, was 290 words and didn't mention Jess uh, uh, Lorishell's name whatsoever. Um, the current... Uh, letter writing campaign we're doing uh, uh, through our uh, valor in the presence of the enemy. We're almost at 20,000 letters uh, that have been sent in a month and a half. So we've surpassed the the numbers of our petition and, you know, expedition, you know, by a far, far margin. And we're still, we're still going until Remembrance Day. Um, but of those 60, or of those about 20,000 uh, letters sent, only about 15% have been opened by the members uh, and their staff. So we're only getting about 12% of our letters, our emails even being. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.